Hello and welcome to Push Your Peak with me, Louise Minchin. Each week I'll be joined by some of the world's most incredible sports people who've achieved extraordinary things. I'll be finding out what it takes both physically and mentally to surpass what you think the human body is capable of and achieve your goals. As these people share their stories, I hope you take away the belief that you too can achieve your goals no matter how big or small. Today I'm joined by ultra-endurance cyclist and adventurer Mark Beaumont. From the young age of 12, Mark's love of cycling began when he cycled across Scotland from Dundee to Oban. Since then, Mark has broken many cycling records around the world. And in 2017, he broke the record of cycling around the world in less than 80 days along an 18,000-mile route. He's also ridden from Cairo to Cape Town, breaking the record for the fastest solo ride the length of Africa. While closer to home, he's also set the record for completing the North Coast 500, a 518-mile route around Scotland. Alongside these feats of incredible endurance, Mark has also turned his hand to some more unusual records, including the British Hour record on penny farthing. Good morning, Mark. It is lovely to speak to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. You've obviously had your coffee. I know that because you tweeted a picture of your coffee. So much to talk to you about. And anybody who knows a little bit about you and possibly a little bit about me will know that I've just come back from what, for me, is a really big adventure. I cycled across Argentina, nearly across Argentina, but that's another story. Eight days, and I think I did 1,200 kilometers. But that, to you, is like a little drop in the ocean, isn't it? (laughs) It's uh, one of my favorite parts of the world to ride a bike. If I was to pick my top two locations to go back and explore more at the speed of a bike, it would be Africa and South America. So um, I'm pretty jealous. My last expedition before the world stopped spinning a couple of years ago was was in Chile, but I was in the north. I was up in the Atacama Desert trying to do the world's longest descent. So basically climb the world's highest volcano. It's called Ocos del Salado. Uh, and then basically do 300 kilometers downhill off the side of a volcano through the Atacama to the Pacific Ocean. So we looked at the Himalayas, but they were just a bit too gnarly, snowy, unrideable. Whereas the Andes, there's a lot of mountains you can actually ride down the side of. But if you imagine going to 6,800 meters with a bike on your back, which I saw, I've seen the video. I mean, yeah, so you're carrying your bikes and your kit, weren't you? Yeah, it's the second highest mountain out in the in the in the Western Hemisphere. So, and it's a it's a big old hill, and but it is a volcano, so it's basically a massive scree slope, and the the air is very thin at nearly 7,000 meters, and then you know you better not hinge yourself because you're you're kind of beyond rescue up there. But it's, it's stunning. I love Chile. I love Chile because, you know, kind of like Norway and other countries which are long and thin, you've just got such a cross-section of geography and climate. I mean, which, which of all your adventures, you love that one particularly, obviously, uh, yeah. which of all your challenges, and I know that was hard because, as you say, you got to climb the mountain with your bike, etc. Was it round the world in 80 days? Was that the hardest? As an athlete, in terms of in terms of sheer commitment, like all my cards on the table, sleep deprivation, like what is my ultimate as an athlete? The the Around the World in 80 Days project was was my Everest. That's a nice way of putting it. That was my yeah. Everest. Was it the most extreme thing I've done in terms of sort of expeditionary? No, probably not. I mean, you've got to, 
you got to realize that around the world in 80 days was a fully supported race. So whilst I was going nearly 400 kilometers a day, every day for two and a half months, I had this amazing performance team, logistics team, media team around me all the time. So in that sense, you know, it wasn't, it was very complicated and it was very, very hard as an athlete, but I've done things which are more out there in terms of, in terms of the adventure, like, like rowing the Atlantic or trying to take a boat further north than anyone's ever gone before through the high Arctic or, you know, some of the stuff which is definitely higher risk and there's greater unknowns and there's more like figuring it out as you go. Whereas, whereas around the world in 80 days was just as an athlete, how, how hard can I go? Yeah. I mean, and so hard. I mean, so many people will have read your book, would have seen the documentary. The last time we caught up, Louise, was... I think I came in and chatted on the red sofa just before I left. And then when I came back, and I I was probably a slightly different person when I came back. But I remember that we chatted longer off air than we were on air. I remember afterwards, we were in the green room and uh, just (laughs) chatting about your traveling. You know, you were asking about all sorts of kit choices and, and, and it was great fun. But it was nice. Actually, I announced to the world that we were going to do the Around the World in 80 Days on, on the, on the red sofa on, on, on the breakfast show. And the reaction was extraordinary. Just people, for some reason, believing I could do it even before I turned a single pedal stroke. And then, you know, just having to live up to that expectation. I'd claimed it before I did it, which just <laughs> set this precedent that, you know, the, the world record before was 123 days to get around the planet. And there was me saying that we could do it in sub 80. It's a, it's a big jump. Yeah. And you did it. I've written it down. Seven, correct me if I'm wrong. 78 days, 14 hours and 40 minutes. That's right. Gosh. So if you so if you so if you want to know behind the scenes, our yeah. actual our actual plan was seventy five days riding, yeah. three day, three days of flights, three full days of flights when you add it all up, and then two days contingency, which gave me twelve hours of contingency per continent of the planet. And I was riding across. That's all. <laughs> if you think about it, you know, like leg one's going from Paris to Beijing, lots of border crossings, lots yeah. of you know flights to be delayed, and things which are outside of your control. Headwinds, tailwinds, you know, they can delay you by 12 hours. So if you add up 75 days riding, three days flights, that gives you 78 days. So my two days of contingency, my 48 hours contingency, I used 14 hours and 40 minutes of my, of my 48 hours contingency. So when you work back from the plan, as opposed to, you know, what the world saw, then we, so we broke my target by 1.44%. That was the margin. Mm-hmm. Gosh, nothing, nothing. But we broke the previous record by 37%. So so everyone looks at that sort of comparative success and like, you know, wow, how do you create that massive leap in performance? But but actually for us, you know, we absolutely nailed it. But that doesn't really tell the story of two and a half months racing 240 miles no. a day. You know, lots went right, lots went wrong. And I mean, for me, the sort of, but it's the sheer physicality of 240 miles a day is just brutal every day, but also the accumulative effect of that. Yes. And I think that's where ultra endurance gets interesting because I live in Edinburgh in Scotland. And I I always say, look, I'm not the best bike rider in Edinburgh, let alone Scotland, let alone the world. The reason that I have broken the circumnavigation world record twice and lots of other world records is because of my approach and because of the teams I work with. You know, it's not the meritocracy of bike riders. It's not my FTP. It's not my my price as a bike rider. Yeah, you got to be a, a, a damn good bike rider, but but it's all the other stuff that allows you to have that resilience and that process to be able to break these records. And that's what I'm proud of if I think back over the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I get the credit for it, but there's there's an incredible sort of team and process behind these things. 
And the, the Around the World in 80 Days was the culmination of everything I'd learned since I was a 12-year-old kid peddling across Scotland. You know, and by that point, I was in my mid-30s. So, you know, I always say two things. I say, you know, shoot for the stars, but learn your trade. And by that, I mean, you know, if you want to be the best at something, absolutely aspire to that, but, but realize that, you know, you genuinely need to earn your stripes. You know, in this Instagram world of just seeing results, you've got to understand the years and the process that gets people to that point. And if I was to rock up at a local club ride, people would beat me. You know, I'm not that fast, but the ability not to break down physically and mentally, you know, the ability to, I I was time trialing for 1,200 hours. I was, I was five hours a night sleep for two and a half months, riding my bike from four o'clock in the morning till half past nine at night. And it's interesting. I know, Louise, you've been involved in the amazing Dodi Aid uh, campaign over January. So you've been supporting Sir Chris Hoy on his uh, fundraising efforts. Chris also jumped in when I organized World in a Day, which is something I do annually. And World in a Day, and we're, I mean, now we're fundraising for research into a cure for motor neuron disease and caring for those who have it. But the, the concept of that, that event, World in a Day, is to allow people to experience one day yeah. of the round the world cycle. And I think I've done it six times now or seven times. And it's fascinating because a 240 mile day is a huge effort for people who are normal club riders, you know, a double century plus. And to be slightly unkind, I often get to 230 miles into the ride. And then I've got this big group of people who have done the biggest ride they've ever done and this huge achievement and raising money for a really important charity. And then I say to everyone, right, guys, great effort. You've put in a massive shift today. Now you get five hours sleep and you have to do the same thing tomorrow. Oh, and I, and I think, at, and I think at that point the penny drops that anyone, if they psych themselves up, can go for a long bike ride. But actually, to break world records, it's about can you get not enough sleep and wake up and do it again, 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 again for weeks and months. And that's the difference between being a good bike rider and having that sort of mental toolkit and that resilience to to break the big records. Our podcast is called Push Your Peak, and there's no doubt that you do that. And so many people will want to know, and and even from those answers, you're already telling us a little bit of insight into it. You said the thing that's key to you is not breaking down physically and mentally. Let's start with the physicality, because you've sort of given us an insight into it. And I've had a small insight. I mean, I did eight days with one one rest day in the middle. And actually, in, in some ways, I kind of, because I never trained properly, Mark, by the way, and things always kind of get in my way, trained my way into it. So I got better, but presumably in yours, are you getting better at some point or are you just every little day losing a little bit of that physical, you know, the physical resilience? If you're doing a record that lasts for at least a couple of weeks, yeah, I would argue that something that lasts for eight days can be a battle yeah. of attrition. You can be riding to fail. You know, you can, you can get away with it for up to say 10 days. You can be losing weight. You can be, oh, yeah. you, know, you can be smashing your immune system. You can be... The, the interesting thing about something that lasts for a week or 10 days, it can be extraordinarily hard, but there, there is a clear countdown. Yes, of course. I knew when it was ending. Yeah. And I know you're asking about the physicality, but it's hard to split the, the psychology from the physicality. Yeah. Because what I've, I've taken a lot of athletes, like phenomenal athletes onto, into the expeditionary world. And athletes can do put themselves through a hell of a lot of suffering, but... In terms of motivation, it's very interesting that switch between being motivated to do something hard because it's soon going to be over 
and they yeah. need to reflect on it and being motivated to do something hard because of what you're doing, because it's not going to be over soon. And I've seen some phenomenal athletes, say, in the middle of the Atlantic or, you know, high on mountains going, because I'm suffering and the road in front of me is never ending, the whole sort of ability to cope crumbles, mm. wow. not because they don't have the physical aptitude, but because they're used to doing hard things that end. Okay. And when they don't end, you know, it switches into that. I need to be motivated because I'm because of what I'm doing, not the idea it's soon going to be over. And then the other sort of going back to the straight physical side, because yeah. you asked, you know, do you get stronger or weaker? If you're doing something that lasts for months, it has to be ultimately sustainable. You have to be putting into your body what you're taking out of it. So I finished the Around the World Cycle the same weight as that I started, you know, shoveling, you? shoveling sort of 8,000 calories in a day. But in training... It's impossible to do the load, the actual time on the bike that you will be when you're on the event. So I would say in the first week of any big record attempt like that, there's the switch between the physical fitness yeah. and the conditioning. So the conditioning is not like your muscular strength. The conditioning is the long hours on the bike, which manifests itself more on the neural side. So, you know, a lot of bike riders get quite A-framed on the bike. The ulna nerve means they get tingly fingers and sort of sore neck. And, yeah. you know, you know, they, 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 you know, their, their body geometry gets bad. Their knees come out there, you know, the, the, the soreness in the, underneath the cleats, their the good old saddle sores. Oh, all that. The we'll all we'll the talk stuff about that, that later in detail, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite early to talk about that, but we'll try. But that sort of, people forget the conditioning side of bike riding. Yeah. They think it's just about sort of like getting fit and being strong, whereas actually to endure on the bike, it's about your body just coping with those 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 long, long hours and that sort of ability to recover fast and, and, and do it again. So there's always a, I think in the first week is when you're most likely to get repetitive strain injuries, tendonitis, that kind of thing, because the body's sort of bedding in and getting used to it. Once you get through that first week, You've kind of you've kind of switched from the physical fitness to the the conditioning to do the longer hours, and you should be okay. I always think if you get an injury after the first week on an expedition, it's because of something you've changed, as opposed yeah. to you're not just you're not just going to break down. And I've often been on expedition where you start, you know, you get very good as an endurance athlete to know the difference between being sore and being injured, because you're always at some level sore. And you've got to have the self-awareness and the knowledge and the objectivity, I guess, on your own situation to go, that's a problem. And what do I change? And what you need to be able to do in those situations is go, what have I changed? I'm really fascinated. And, and um, I feel very privileged to have kind of done what I would call now a long, a long bike ride. And I think kind of like eight days in, I'm absolutely astounded by what actually my body was able to do. I kind of completely underestimated it. And also genuinely, I mean, you know, you could argue this lots of ways, couldn't you? You could argue that I could have pushed myself harder and been absolutely exhausted at the end. But actually at the end, if you told me I had to get on my bike and do another 100 and whatever, 80K the next day, I could have done it. Yeah. I could have done it. So you, I, I kind of, you know, that, that seven day thing is an interesting thing, isn't it? it was def there was definitely a change at some point for me when I'm like, oh yeah, this is just what I do now. I, I hear you, but I think there's also a lot to be said about the, the power of your expectation. So yeah. if you set yourself up to a journey like that, yeah. so take take the 80 days again. I rode 78 days, 14 hours, 40 minutes. When I got back to Paris, there was a big reception that evening. I'd never thought about what happened after the finish. There was a huge yeah. press reception, you know, sponsors, family, everyone was there. 
half the hotel was filled with, you know, our party. I came, I woke up the following morning, day 79, and I was absolutely physically broken. I was absolutely physically broken. I walked downstairs, looked into the breakfast hall and everyone that was in there was there to see me. And I turned left rather than right. I walked out the door, sat on the doorstep next to the hotel and I was just in bits. The, the, Did you, the really, were you crying in bits? Are you Yeah, what? I was, yeah, I was Why not in a good way. I was, I was upset. Oh. I was broken. I was physically broken. And, and, the, and, yeah. the, and what I find, what I find interesting about that, you know, Nikki, my wife found me eventually and, and oh. um, I was right. But my point is more the fact that the power of expectations for 78 days, I performed exactly what we had planned that I would perform. Yeah. Now, and, and, and ultimately over two and a half months, it was sustainable. There was nothing different about day 79. And yet there I was at nine o'clock in the morning, not four, 4 a.m. And if you'd paid me a million pounds, I couldn't have ridden my bike that day. I was, really? I was Because of your mind had put a sort of full stop on it. I was physically broken. I was Amazing. physically broken. And yet why yeah. was I not physically broken on day 78, 76, 75 and all the way back? I think the, the mind has such an amazing ability, you know, to program what's necessary to do what, you know, you set out to do. And then, you know, clearly I could have ridden my bike on day 79, 80, mm-hmm. but the only way to do it differently is to have a different plan. And I, I think it's fascinating that, the, you know, the physical manifestation of that, because there I was on the morning of day 79, and I was broken mentally and physically. The relief and the way that manifested itself, you know, physically was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could have ridden my bike that day. Um, and, and yet nothing had really changed, had it? No, well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I can t- entirely relate to that. It's just, I expect many people and me included, you know, you get to the finishing line and you put it all on the line, whether it's mentally fi- and mentally is, is kind of like or, almost more important than physically in some ways, isn't it? Because you'd invested so much, hadn't you, of your reputation and everything on that ride. Yeah, it'd been two and a half years in the planning. You know, I had yeah. a lot of skin, I'd had a lot of skin in the game. Skin, exactly. Yeah. Did you? And, okay, interest. Yeah. And I felt, and I felt, I think those 40 people working with me for me on that project. And I felt very acutely if I failed, everyone failed. I needed oh, them, gosh. I, you know, I needed them to be brilliant at their job. I needed everyone to be the best they could be. But ultimately, if I didn't turn up and do my job, then it was, you know, all to no avail. You've got yeah. a million quid, million quid project, 40 people working for you. And the responsibility for me to be able to turn the pedals and complete on the task is, is huge. It's interesting. This is not like an ego statement, but people often say to me, Mark, I'd love to do what you do. And I always say to them, I think you like the idea of what I do because, yeah. you know, you see it on telly and you see the world records. You, you see, see the glory bits, don't we? Yeah, you see the outcomes, the outputs. I've been doing this for 25 years now since I was a kid. I'm 39. So I've been on a journey to get to this quite extreme end of endurance, ultra endurance. And trust me, if the sum total of your ambition is to pay the mortgage and get by, there's easier ways to make a living. If you if you're gonna get into this level of sport, you've got to you've got to be driven by a fundamental wish to to really I mean, I've always wanted to really shift the dial. I was inspired when I was a kid by Ellen MacArthur sailing around the world. Oh, yes. I mean, fabulous. Yeah. What a great role model. A hundred percent. And I always wondered why in my world cycling the circumnavigation wasn't the most coveted, the most professional record out there. Why, why, why wasn't it like, you know, the Alan MacArthur sailing record? So that's always driven me. The want to, on a planet of 7 billion plus people, do something which really 
changes what people believe is possible. And, you know, in the last 20 odd years in ultra endurance, you know, I'm proud to have been a part of a generation that have really, we've not made marginal gains. The, the guys and the girls who are pushing ultra endurance now are in a, in a different space than we were when I started doing this. And I'm proud to be part of that generation. This podcast is brought to you by Wattbike. Push your performance this year with Wattbike. Whether you're training for a sportive or simply want to get fitter, the award-winning smart bike Wattbike Atom could be your perfect training partner. With integrated gear shifters, real ride feel and gold standard accuracy, this is the ultimate indoor bike to kickstart your indoor training. You can measure and track your cycling performance on the free Wattbike Hub app, and get real-time feedback on your pedaling technique too. Expertly crafted and designed in the UK, what bikes are tough enough to withstand elite athletes in training while beautiful enough to sit in your own home. Discover how what bike can help you reach your goals this year. Just head to whatbike.com. You mentioned the guys and the girls, and it's really interesting that you mentioned Ellen MacArthur because I'm I'm in the middle of the reason I went to South America is I'm writing a book about super women, and I went with Mimi Anderson, and I don't know if you know who she is, but she's one of the world's best, most successful endurance runners. She's awesome, isn't she? She was she was she was messaging me this morning asking about tents. Was she? Yeah, yeah, I know me. Yeah, she was she was asking, <laughs> she was asking about ultra light tents. So um, yeah, we, <laughs> we, 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 we were we were chatting this morning. Well, well, you know Mimi then. I know her extremely well, having spent virtually every minute of every day for like two weeks with her. And to, to that point about women, I want to ask you, because, you know, women do very well in ultra endurance events, don't they? Why, why do you think that is that women are partic- we're not particularly good at, but, you know, we are good at that, aren't we? Is it about mindset? I think the, the simple answer is at sprint sports, at power sports, there is clearly a, a clearly a physiological advantage with men, you know, just in terms of our our physiology, our muscle groups, and and you know that that goes without saying. So when you get into the endurance, ultra endurance world, that's what I love about it. Male, female, young, old, we can all do endurance. We can all do endurance because we've all got the basic sort of physical toolkit to be able to endure, and then it becomes far more about the mental toolkit, and actually. When it comes to ultra endurance, there's a lot to be said about the female physiology, which is, you know, to to your advantage. Mm. I also think we're all wired up differently. But in terms of temperament, focus, again, more on the psychological side, when you are, I don't want to sort of be too cliched about sort of the male female thing, but there's a, when you are doing ultra endurance, the only person you're really racing is yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, just think of testosterone and competition in a very sort of adversarial way, serial way that doesn't exist as much in the endurance expeditionary world. So if it's about sort of figuring out your personal best, having that competition with yourself, trying to figure out the best version of yourself, you're not really trying to beat anyone else. Perhaps that's not suited to the way all men think. Mm. Again, I, I don't want to be too cliched about the way men think. There's phenomenal males and females leading in open water swimming, fell running, you know, ultra endurance running, cycling. 
I'm very proud that the fastest male and female to cycle around the world are both Scottish. I know this is not a Scottish podcast. There's a Scottish thing. I I thought I'd get that little plug in there. It's nothing to do with being male or female. It's nothing nothing to do with being a male or female. It's just, you've just got to have a Scottish somewhere in your DNA. And that, I have to (laughs) thank Dale for that question on Twitter as well. So when are those, when you have those really kind of, you know, you talk about that sort of dark moment once you finish, but there must be many moments, I imagine, in these events when you're just thinking, I mean, maybe you're not, Mark, but I certainly have them where I go, what on earth and why am I doing this? And really, I'm going to stop and I'm going to stop now. Does that happen and how do you get through it? I mean, that is probably right at the top of the frequently asked questions, like how do you keep going in your mm. toughest moments? I think because I've come up with the projects myself, it's not like somebody else has told me to do these things. I think if there was any sense in I've been told to do this and it, for me, it's about accountability. You know, if I've set myself up to do something, I'm not going to sort of blame other people or feel sorry for myself when I end up in that place. It's on me. So I think there's two types of hardship. There's a crisis point. There's a moment in time when you really are tested. So that could be a bike crash or something going horribly wrong. And there's plenty of them to talk about. And I think we've all got quite a good inbuilt fight or flight. By that, I mean, when things go horribly wrong and your dreams are jeopardized, then we all have that inbuilt ability to fight back because actually there's something to fight against. There's something to fight mm. for. You know, you've had momentum, you've tasted success, you're on track and then bang, something happens. And I think in those situations, we're all better than we think we would be because there's something very, very specific to focus on. Just east of Moscow on day eight of the Around the World Cycle, the second one, I um, crashed and broke some teeth and fractured my elbow. So I had a crack in my radio head. So imagine then trying to shovel 8,000 calories down through wobbly broken teeth and riding your bike with a crack through your elbow. You know, yeah. I was not, not in a good way, but there was something very specific to fight against. I think we've all got that in us. What I would call out is harder, which people don't expect, is when you've got that sheer battle of attrition. You know, you're going across the Midwest, the prairies for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, and it's just an unrelenting headwind. And, you know, there's not a crisis point. There's not a moment which is going to sort of derail the whole project. It's just the never endingness of the road in front of you and how, how damn hard it is. And I think that kind of like breaks on progress, the just stuff that wears you down over weeks and days. I think that's probably harder to deal with than the crisis points. And, I, and there are points. I can think back to my first cycle around the world when I was 23 getting off the bike in the middle of Australia, maybe 500 miles in each direction with the odd roadhouse and no, no towns and just staring into a unrelenting headwind going, how can I, how can I keep going? I'm just completely on my own and I will be for another week or two until I get out of this. And in that situation, the way I always think about it is the only thing worse than going slowly is stopping. If, if you're back here in everyday life and things get horribly difficult, we can distract ourselves. We can do something else because we're multitasking. The wonderful thing about expeditions is they're hard, but they're wonderfully simple. You've got one thing to do every day and that's keep the momentum, the classic ride, eat, repeat, mm. sleep, repeat. So it's not like you can stop doing what you're doing and do something else. There's nothing else to do. And so you're either doing, it's very binary. You're either doing it or you're not. And I think in everyday life, we're very good at making excuses for our inability to complete on tasks and just go, oh, well, you know, I'll do that instead and I'll come back to it, but you never do. When you're doing a big bike ride, what else are you going to do? You're either doing it or you're not. And when it gets hard, 
you do, you realize in those moments when you do stop the bike and go, how the hell can I carry on? You've got a very simple choice. And even going slowly is better than stopping. So momentum is your friend. Gosh, I wish I'd had this conversation before. There's a particular point in the bike ride where Mimi and I turned. It was kind of deep in a big day, right? And we got wet and we, we were going along fine. Then we turned right and we just went into this horrific headwind. And it was really hard. And I wish I'd had that little message in my head because we got through it. We did it. We did it together. And that together is a great thing. But I'd wish I'd had that message in my head because it would have made it feel a little bit easier on the day. I think there's all, I think there's also a lot of power in when you've done enough of these things, knowing that your hardest moments make the best memories. And it's not like you're a sadist and you're looking for hardship, but it's that classic type two fun that people always talk about. Yeah, I only, I'm, an, I'm new to type two fun. Explain it to me. Yeah, it's the simple concept that, you know, if you're sitting in a bar having your champagne or your pint and, you know, that's type one fun. It's fun in the moment. It's great. But the things you're talking about when you're sat at the bar are normally the, the life affirming, career defining mm. bits that tested you. And that's the type two fun. So when you're there, when you're battling, when things are going wrong, you're not going, hey, I'm having a ton of fun. But you can invoke without sort of being, uh, uh, you know, you don't need to do this publicly because people might think you're a bit of a prat, but you can invoke sort of the hero in it. You can sort of like say, well, the heroics of the hardship and knowing that this will be really, really important for your identity and how you see yourself in the future. And that quiet confidence around the ability to do things like that, that's type two fun. And I think it's unrealistic when you're slogging up a, 15 kilometer climb in the Alps to go, Hey, I'm having a ton of fun. This is amazing. That's that's just lying to yourself. So don't (laughs) lie to yourself. But when you are on that 15 kilometer climb, quietly dying on the bike, you can invoke sort of the the superhero mentality in terms of like how this helps you define who you are. And I think that identity part is fundamentally important and you're not doing it necessarily because of how people see you, but how you see yourself. And I'd say, think forwards to when it's over and you are sat in the bar chatting to your mates, those moments are important and it helps you get through them with that objectivity of going, do you know what? This is hell, but it's kind of the making of, because life's wonderfully comfortable. And we always say that we want the easy life and, you know, we want, but if, if your life is too comfortable, you actually get fundamentally pretty unhappy uh, Pushing not, yourself, yeah. Yeah, not Somewhere. to get too deep, not to get too yeah. deep and meaningful about it, but human beings are at their best when they're striving. People always think about the place where they're going to be, I've made it and I'm comfortable, you know, financially or physically or whatever else it is. But I hope you never get there. And I mean that. I hope you never get to the place where you think you've made it. Because the moment you stop striving, the, the is the moment you stop learning and this the creating those wonderful memories. So I, I hope you never make it. And I think that's that's the best thing you can hope for anyone because then you realize that you should be taking on difficult things. Just tell us about your training as well because I, I love meeting you, by the way, for the seconds that I do when I'm on Zwift and I'm training indoors and you go <laughs> yeah. shooting past me. Tell us about training because you did use a walk bike, didn't you? Yeah, loads. The Africa world record was 2015, so 10,000 kilometers from Cairo to Cape Town. That, there was about a five-year period where I used the, the Pro and the the Atom. Yeah, amazing bits of kit. And I spent 
a silly amount of time training on those bikes. I was I wanted to know how yeah, how much what, what kind of was your, you know, like go-to ride? How long was that? I would do up to six six hour sets on it. But and what lot... were you doing? Were you listening to music? Or you... Yeah, no, oh, normally you... no, normally watching watching a film at the same time. Okay. But like a lot of athletes, you know, you should be really focusing your indoor training, not on Jumos endurance rides. They're the exception. Yeah. You know, the classic reverse periodization. So you're spending your your off season early on in the season really pushing your power intervals, pushing the the cadence, like, like really becoming the best bike rider you can in terms of like that physical strength. And then when you get out on the road more, then you build the hours, then you build the conditioning on top of that. So in terms of like being time efficient, you're much, much better. There's no point just going onto a watt bike and sitting Mm. in zone two for hours and hours and hours and hours. You might do that once a week, but you know, it's much more time efficient to, to have well-structured sessions as opposed to just turning the legs over. How do you think, because obviously not all of us, um, I feel very lucky that I, I, well, I've left my job for starters, so I've got a bit more time to do this kind of thing. How do people listening fit in, do you think, uh, mini adventures around kind of daily lives, jobs, et cetera? It's hard. I mean, I, I did adventures full time for a long time, but I've now got a young family. I, yeah. have a, I have a desk job. I run an investment firm and I still try and train to the top level to take on some of the world's biggest endurance races. So it is possible, but you need to be very disciplined. You mm-hmm. need to you need to have a weekly plan. If you're doing this seriously, it is worth having a coach because I've literally written written the book on endurance. So I could I could easily write my own training schedules, but I still yeah. have a coach because having that a friend and the accountability of somebody else to set the schedule. Because otherwise if you're time poor, like I am, like you are, like everyone is, then you tend to, when you train, just smash it every time. You're like, I've got an hour and you just go zone five and you just brace every session. So to have that long-term view of how what your training is doing to build up to the big event in your calendar, I think it's super useful to have a coach who really sort of forces you. And it's just that quiet accountability. And I mean, my wife's amazing, but she's got other things to focus on. So if I'm needing to prioritize training as well as kids, as well as work, it's actually unfair to my wife to look to her for that moral support. You know, I need somebody mm-hmm. else in my life who who is just focused on focused on my my life as a as a, a, a you know as as an athlete. So I think that's that's important. Two things. First of all, one of my favorite things that I know about you is you talk about the doorstep mile. That is the most difficult yeah. one, isn't it? To get you know whatever it's to get off this sofa that I'm sitting on to go for a walk. The first step is the most difficult in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't coin that phrase. But the the doorstep mile is so true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the idea of doing training. It's the idea of getting out in the wind or the rain. Or it's the idea of getting on the walk bike. It's it's just getting started. You never regret doing it. You never regret doing it. But it's easy to procrastinate and not get started. The other thing I should say is, over the last couple of years, I've been trying to encourage people to explore their boundaries. I've used I've sort of used that phrase on purpose because. You don't need to go to Chile. You don't need to go to the other side of the planet to have an adventure. I created a set of gravel routes in Scotland last year with my friend Marcus Stitz, where I was quite intrigued by when the government said you can't leave your council area. I was like, well, where is my council area? So I found that arbitrary line around Edinburgh and created a route around it and then got interested in terms of what the rest of the country looked like created these local routes, which you could walk, you could run, you could cycle. And 
it's it's just about giving a purpose to your journey. So rather than just going and doing the same old route you always do, if you lived in a city, do a, a running route around mural trails, or you could mm-hmm. say, I'm going to follow that river, or I'm going to... So the Explore Your Boundaries for me became a set of short journeys that each took you know anywhere between half a day and two days. But I wanted to explore your boundaries to show that you can have adventures on your doorstep wherever you lived. You can find wild trails, you can find wilderness, and it's not really for the training in the sense of like, you know, what's my power, what's my heart rate, but Mm. it's about creating great memories. It's about getting muddy. It's about having fun on your bike, or if it's on the road, you know, same thing. It's just about spending time with your friends. But Explore Your Boundaries for me is also a metaphor. It's also like, just push yourself. Remember what it's like to be a child when you were climbing trees and getting muddy, like never lose track of that sort of childlike wonder in your training. Like if you're interested in being an athlete, you've got to, you've got to enjoy doing it. It can't just be about numbers. It's got to be about ultimately getting out there and doing fun stuff. Yeah. I've been really pushing that a lot in the last couple of years, encouraging people to think local, get out and have running and cycling adventures and just buddy up, find people who that they can um, share these adventures with. We did exactly the same, actually, exactly for the same reason, because, you know, I live very near North Wales and I used to go walking there all the time. And obviously, you know, we weren't able to go there. So we found that, I mean, I've never been on the Sandstone Trail in Cheshire before then. And I did the whole of it in little chunks. And it was absolutely, it really changed my whole view of where I live, actually. So it's wonderful to talk to you. I'm going to ask that really, really cliche question. Loads of people asked, Mark, very quickly, you're going to hate this. What's next? What's next? (laughs) Do you know somebody asked me that on the finishing line in Paris at the end of cycling around the world? I'm like, is that not enough? Is that not yeah, enough? Exactly. Um, what's next? So what am I up to this year? The worst kept secret is that I'm heading over to America to take on Race Across America, RAM. In, oh, RAM, uh, in, I know in, RAM. In, yeah. in June. Yeah, so it's widely considered the world's hardest ultra endurance race. Over on that side, I'll, I'm trying to do a big gravel race in Canada as well. I've got some more Explore Your Boundaries filming to do in Scotland, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm just back from a big training camp in Spain and I'll be back out in Mallorca for some other stuff in the spring. There's a lot going on. (laughs) And some daft stuff, some daft stuff as well. Like they're all sort of normal road bike, gravel style bike stuff. But I've got, I I work for Global Cycling Network, GCN, and uh, we've got some more sort of crazy adventure challenges coming up as well. So, um, so watch, watch this space, as they say. Keep us in touch. Keep me in touch because I'm now the proud owner of a gravel bike, which got me successfully across Argentina. And I love my bike. She's called Juanita because I don't know if your bikes have names, but yeah, gravel biking is, is a new thing for me too. And it's kind of, it's kind of up and coming, isn't it? It's amazing. I'm a complete convert. Are you? It's genuine, genuinely the bike can do, they can do everything. I entered <laughs> GB Giro last year, which is the gravel race, the length of the UK. So basically lands in Shona Groot's off-road. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, I was a much better bike rider after those 11 days of racing because you're constantly thinking on the gravel bike aren't you Mm -hmm. you know you're constantly switched on it's not just about you know your speed and all the road stuff it's about it's about the terrain it's like the skills of a mountain biker with the efficiency of a road biker i love it i haven't quite got those yet but i'm on my early days mark early days Oh, listen, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. And before you go, I'm just going to ask you quick fire questions. You don't have to think too much about them. Okay. okay. <laughs> What's your guilty pleasure after a savage what bike or indoor session? Chocolate. Ah, excellent. What song gets you pumped for a workout? It'll be something probably like Chili Peppers or Strokes. That shows my age. It's like, you know, your student years. 
Foo Fighters. All good, all Some good. Like What's the secret item in your pain cave? If you have a pain cave and a secret item. Oh, do you know what I have got in, uh, have got? in, my, in, in my pain cave? It's right over here. You might recognise it. What is it? it? Olympic torch. Oh my gosh, it's the Olympic torch. That's got to be inspiring, hasn't it? How wonderful. Who is your motivation? Uh, close to home. Clearly, I've already mentioned the likes of Ellen MacArthur, mm-hmm. phenomenal athletes out there that I follow. But, you know, my mom, Yuna, she's, she's, she's supported me since I was a 12-year-old kid pedaling across Scotland and worked with me for me full time for a long, long time. So, so mom's, mom's been amazing. And now my own daughters and, and Nikki, my wife, you know, they, they're the absolute sort of rocks in my life. Oh, I love it. It's all strong female role models. Loving that, Mark, by the way. I've got, I've got two, two sisters, two daughters. Oh. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely outnumbered. <laughs> well, it clearly does you good. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? The first BBC cameraman I ever worked with, the great late David Pete, said to me when I was in my early 20s, he said, in life, try to be valued because of who you are, not what you do. And I've taken that with me everywhere I go yeah I ride a bike but the value the impact is 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 you as a person you're not defined by the nuts and bolts of what you do lots of people ride their bike but the impact you have on the world is broader than that skill set so being valued because of who you are not because of what you do Mark it's been a real pleasure just pleasure to speak to you thank you so much for joining us thank you for listening to push your peak a podcast for real athletes who don't know their limits Next week, I'll be joined by big wave surfer Andrew Cotton to talk about the mental and physical challenges of coming back from a life-threatening injury and braving some of the world's biggest waves. You can find Rock Bike on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. To find out more, just head to rockbike.com. And if you like what you're hearing, I'd love it if you rate it, review it, and follow. It really helps. This podcast was brought to you by Wattbike. The Wattbike Atom is the ultimate indoor bike to kickstart your training. No matter what your training or fitness goals are, the free Wattbike Hub app can get you there. Check out wattbike.com to push your performance edge.